George and Lorraine. So here's a couple, you know, gotta have chemistry, but also has to have chemistry with Marty in a weird way, right? Again, this is yeah. why this story would never be made now. Yes. The Oedipus complex is like beyond words. And we're all just <laughs> like watching this movie like da 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 da. Yeah, it's insane. Welcome to another episode of the MacGuffin Podcast, the movie review podcast that dreams are made of. Keith Foster, sitting pretty in San Diego, California. Cassidy Robinson, you, as always, are recording in an undisclosed location in the Rocky Mountains. I have questions. Okay. So you watch a lot more television than I do. Uh Uh-huh. And I don't know if it's like sweeps season or what but everyone's talking about all these new shows that's not really how it works anymore but okay i just want to see what you're watching and if you have any kind of developed opinion on it okay so i have a small list here of shows that i see constantly talked about on twitter um and i don't need like a full review or even more than like one sentence but i just want to know what you think of these shows okay all right that I have yet to start watching, or if I even should. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So, Book of Boba. Oh yeah, I'm watching. I'm I'm watching Boba T. Uh, <laughs> it's basically like another season of Mandalorian, but without uh, you know, Mandalorian. Like it's very similar in tone and style. Um, but yeah. it's cool. I like it. Is it? I mean, okay. So, I, I feels to me. That there's an enthusiasm drop off, like pretty, pretty, uh, significantly between the two shows. And that's why I haven't like been immediately, you know, jumped on. I think if, if you like Mandalorian, I, I feel like there's no reason why you shouldn't like the book of Boba Fett. It is remarkably similar in quality. I think it's for a lot of online personalities. Mm-hmm. Uh, here, here's the thing. Boba Fett is a character that has always been shrouded in mystery. You know, he's just the cool badass in the corner. He yeah. looks like he's going to fuck shit up. So because he's so mysterious, everybody had all of these kind of preconceived notions about who the character is or what he's like. But I mean, the difference is this isn't a Boba Fett origin story. I mean, we kind of already know that from yeah. Attack of Clones. This is like, the continuing adventures of Boba Fett after Mandalorians. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I saw the the, the teaser that was on yeah. the last episode of of Mandalorian, and I thought it looked cool or whatever. Um, I am like, maybe I'm a little less invested. Maybe the world is a little less invested, um, just because we already grew to like Mando so much that we're sure, like, oh, okay, I get. I mean, yeah, Boba Fett's cool. He, I mean, he's a different character. This is a different yeah. story because uh, it, right, it right. does jump back and forth a little bit. But uh, there's nothing you know, wrong with that. No, yeah. I, I heard. I think I heard something like the effects weren't as good, or it wasn't shot as well, or something like that. I don't I know. Do think that uh, there is something about the action that does feel 
there, like there was a chase scene that wasn't great. It was kind of slow feeling. Mm. Uh, so I will say, yeah, maybe the action does feel a little less driven than Mando, but it, I think it's a pretty marginal difference, honestly. Okay. Second show I had on my list, Peacemaker. Are you watching this? Of yes. course you are. Yeah. Of course I am. There's, um, there, there's uh, your number two film of last year was uh, the Suicide Squad. That's right. Uh, there's a new episode that drops tonight that I'm gonna watch after we're done recording. Um, tonally, I think it's a little bit different than Suicide Squad. Suicide Squad was, uh, you know, it's much bigger. There's a whole bunch of characters there on kind of the Save the World mission. Mm-hmm. Um, this is very like, again, this is what happens after Suicide Squad. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I mean, it, I think it's interesting because it is uh, also written and directed by James Gunn. Right, so, so is, he's I, still show running it. Uh, we had, uh, he directed the first three episodes. I don't know if he direct, directed them all, but it is just like a mini one-time series thing. Is there a lot of other... I mean, you're, you're only what, two episodes in, three episodes in? Yeah, three um, episodes. Are there a lot of other cameos from Suicide Squad or The Suicide Squad or uh, the other there, DCU there is, movies? Like some of the crew that was, you know, like Amanda Waller's crew, mm-hmm. um, they have appeared. No other superheroes though, besides, um, uh, an obscure character no, known as Vigilante. But he wasn't already in one of the other no, movies. No, yeah. So uh, as far as superheroes, he's the only one to carry over from Suicide Squad. And, I mean, tonally, it's a little, you know, I think it is much more of a comedy even than the Suicide Squad was. Like, it mm. is definitely trying to be, you know, there's jokes, a lot of jokes. Um It's crude, it's irreverent, immature, but that's kind of the fun of it. As a half hour, hour long show. Uh, I think, I think that, uh, I don't know. Well, nowadays with streaming, they don't even have to fit into those sort of schedules. So yeah, I think sometimes episode like with Mandalorian, it could range anywhere for, from a half an hour to, to an hour and a half. Yeah. I, I think it is, uh, a little more than a half hour. All right. Okay. Finally on here, yellow jackets. What the fuck is this show? I don't know. Uh, Are you it's not on Showtime? I think. Oh, so yeah. I not watching Yellow Jackets. I have only the briefest understanding of what it is. I don't. Um, is it like a horror show or something? So it's it's about. Uh, I think it's a girls' soccer team, the Yellow Jackets, and they get like their. I think their plane crashes. And so they they have to survive. And then the story is told, like, I I think after they make it back and then you see what happened in their crash landing and like flashbacks. So it's sort of a a reverse lost. I see. Yeah. I, I don't know really much else. And it's not on a service either of us watch. So yeah. Yeah. I guess we'll find out or we won't. All right. That's all I wanted to know about that. Let's go ahead and play your game. First of all, today we're going to be reviewing uh, The Tender Bar, which was released on Amazon 
And at the end of the program for the streaming homework, we are also going to be doing your Netflix uh, pick, which was Some Kind of Monster, the Metallica documentary, which is available both on Netflix and Amazon Prime. What was your idea for the pre-review segment? Okay, so we did this once before. I think where, we've done that a couple uh, times. Yeah, we where we take a classic movie that should mm-hmm. not be remade. Uh, I want to emphasize that a classic that should not be remade. Mm-hmm. And we we cast it as though, you know, our, like sort of our dream cast if it was being remade, which it should not. Yes, should not be recast. But if it was who, who your picks would be for uh, sort of the main cast. Uh, and yeah, this go around, we're doing the impossible. We are recasting Back to the Future with modern actors. Yes, we are. And I want to stress, of all of these, this is the worst one. And not because it was just hard to pick people, which it was. Yes. Well, so the added factor is... uh Everyone's you know, double-casted because they're playing the old version of themselves and the young versions of themselves. That's not what even what makes it that hard. I thought that uh, made it incredibly difficult. I No, what I think makes it harder is George and Lorraine have to, like, conceivably be the, the parents of Marty McFly. Right. So not only do you have to cast actors that are playing young and old versions of themselves, you have to cast actors that would convincingly work for your Marty McFly. There were a few Marty options that I was like, oh, no, that's off the table because he's Asian. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, I, you know, I tried to think about that, too. I tried to think about, like, reverse casting or, you know, maybe do a gender swap or a, uh, a race swap. And you, you can do that, but it I, does... I actually do have some, um, uh, I do have a gender swap option, but. Okay. Well, you can do that, but it, it changes a lot about what the story is. is. Yes, it changes it a lot about what the, I'm telling you, this movie not only shouldn't be remade because all the reasons that has to do with why remakes are boring and people are sick of it. But I don't even think it can be. Yeah, it's tough. On a story level, I mean, there's some stuff in that movie that does not fly today. Oh, yeah. So so I think part of... Also, there's the whole question of like, and I guess we'll we'll get into this when we get into the casting. Are we setting it in 1985 and doing 1955? Or are we setting it in present day and going 1992 or... So- I, I think that's kind of part of it. Like if you're because that up- changes everything too. If you're gonna, yes, it does. If you're gonna update a movie, mm-hmm. if you're gonna remake a classic like this, which you shouldn't, yes, I feel like you have to do do it different, right? Like you can't just you can't just be like, all right, I'm gonna try and get as close to the original as possible because it's not possible. Like I I, I feel like I feel like you have to give some kind of new spin on it, some kind of new angle uh, to make it even doable, right? To make it even remotely interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I'm just, I, I, I honestly believe that if this were to get remade, this would break the fever of the remake craze. I, I, I honestly, I mean, that almost happened with Ghostbusters in 2016 mm-hmm. and they like, somehow kind of like scrambled their way out of that. But if this, 
if this were to happen, I, I literally think there'd be riots in the streets. Like, it, I don't think it would work at no, all. No, I don't either. I don't either. But, you know, we're and also nobody viewing wants it. it. We're also viewing it from, you know, growing up in the, the early nineties and, and, you know, for who knows for a modern audience. I, you know, the modern, I don't, I don't know. I don't know if a modern audience cares enough. I think that, yeah. Okay. Let's just get into it. So yeah. we are recasting Marty McFly, Doc, uh, George McFly, Lorraine McFly and Biff. Those are the principal leads. And okay. we're not doing Jennifer. I, I had a couple picks for Jennifer, but that's well, not they it. couldn't even decide who to make her. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, yeah. Let's, let's leave, uh, Jennifer out of it then. Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah. Doc, um, Marty, George, Lorraine and Biff. Uh, and, uh, I, you know, according to our version of it, it would be essentially a story beat remake as well. Cause those are the characters that make that story happen. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So where do you want to start on this? Uh, I don't know, man. Does it matter? <laughs> uh, let's start, let's start with the, the least connected. Uh, let's start with Biff. Okay. Uh, although that, this one was actually probably my hardest. Um, this wasn't my hardest, but it was close. The actor who, I mean, you can say this about all of these actors because they just nail it, but it's such a, God damn, like it's such an incredible character performance. Yeah. That is so it it's not just bully, you know. How many bullies have we seen in movies? I you know, like Yeah. So many movies are about people getting bullied. Uh but it's such a specific and idiosyncratic character mm-hmm. that and also like the arc the character goes on through the the you know you have to be sympathetic enough I don't appre- know about that. to appreciate them as, you know, sort of the good version of them. And you also have to be able to like cast somebody who could, you know, do the fucking Donald Trump timeline. So. Right, right, right. Just for the, just for the sake of this game, I'm not taking back to future two and three into consideration. Okay. I'm only I mean, thinking yeah, about. I- I wasn't really either. Um, this one was just really hard for me. Yeah, this one is a little hard. Again, it's double casting, so he has to convincingly play old and young, a teenager and a, you know, up to 40-something years old. Um, and Tom Wilson, who originally played him, yeah, totally owned, owned that role, turned it into something that on paper could have been so stock. Yeah. Um, I have in this role... And he's a little too old, but just young enough. I think he can still, you can young him up a little bit and put him believably in a high school setting. Uh, Taryn Edgerton. Okay. Cause I think he has, he has that tough guy bravado, that exterior that, you know, the, I'm thinking, you know, the first, um, Kingsman movie when before he's, you know, transformed into a spy, he's just kind of this like, uh, British bully kind of hoodlum, mm-hmm. you know, and, uh, uh, I, th- I think you can, like I said, he's, I think he's 29 IRL, but he's I, like early thirties. Yeah. I, I thought, like, I thought he was like 28, 29, I think but it's like 31 and 32, but for, for fucking Hollywood, that's, 
still he still has that face. You could still cast right. Him. Well, th- and this is one of the cases where you know we always joke about how in the nineties and eighties and seventies and you know all these teen movies they always cast thirty year olds. Like how hilarious is that? Because they're, they're obviously thirty, but for this movie, you almost have to do that. Yeah, because um, again, they have to be convincingly old, like right. And you don't want to just age make up everybody, like. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think, like I said, uh, Taron Egerton is just on that line where, he, with very little effort, he can believably play eighteen or nineteen yeah. and believably play. Thirty nine forty. Yeah, uh, I I think he he works. Um, and I, th- I think for that role, I think he he has what it takes to be you know funny and and intimidating and yeah, kind of could, hateable, like love to hate kind of character. I think yes, I think he. Um, yeah, I can see it. It makes I, sense. Although I, I've never seen him do an American accent before. I don't know if he. Nah, fuck that. I'm sure he can, but but I'm just saying I've never seen it. Okay, so my pick is similar in age. I I think a lot of my picks are are similar in age. Uh, In that he is borderline too old, but I think he could still pull it off. Mm. Um, Anyway, so I cast, because I was trying to think of somebody who could play you know, like a character actor kind of a role. Mm-hmm. Um, and I cast Evan Peters as my Biff. Oh, okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, he's, he plays Quicksilver in the X-Men movies and he was, uh, I guess he also played him in WandaVision as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and he's uh, in, he's uh, the like, American horror stories. And, yeah. He's been yeah. a staple of that. It, it, I think he's just like, He's a really charismatic actor. He's really fun to watch. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he's, I think he could bring some idiosyncratic qualities to the, a bully type character like Biff. Yeah, it can be really I, funny. Yeah, I, that I think, you know, it would definitely be a different take than the Biff we got, but I think he could definitely pull it off. Yeah, I could, I could probably see that too. Um, he is a little old. I think he's even, I think he might be mid, th- he's like close to our age. Um, uh, I just Googled it. He's like two years older than Taron Edgerton. Okay. So not by a ton, but yeah, but yeah. Uh, but he, yes, he is. He's a, he's like a year younger than us. So it is, it is pushing it. Yeah. I mean, all, all of these kind of are, well, I actually with uh, Marty and Lorraine, I try to think younger, but um, yeah, I, I did too, actually. Um, I have one honorable mention that I won't get to until we talk about Marty. Yeah. Well, I have like, <laughs> I have three picks for Doc and I'm going to let you pick it because I can't. Okay. I have, <laughs> I have a whole fucking list, uh, that I could just pull out of a hat. Yeah. Um, um okay. So yeah, I, I like Evan Peters. I think that's a, that's a decent choice. Um, also, uh, it has nothing to do with what we're talking about, but he looks exactly like a young uh, Malcolm McDowell. Yeah, he I can see that. Uh, okay, should we move on to Lorraine? Let's let's do a big one. Let's do, let's do Marty. Okay, all right. Yeah, let's do Marty. Oh, God, this one's so hard. Marty for me was one of the easier ones because he's the only one that doesn't have to play multiple ages. If we're just going the first movie. Okay. Well, I wanted to. 
I think there's kind of an obvious answer, and I wanted to avoid that, I guess. Yeah, I, I think I know which one you're talking about. I also tried to avoid it. Um, uh, we'll see if we're even talking about the same person. But for my Marty, mm-hmm. and again, kind of hard to cast because who's the modern-day Michael J. Fox? There really isn't one. Michael J. Fox is, was a very unique presence in film at the, or film and television at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, kind of like a teen beat magazine sort of kid, but also very funny and very like dry humor. And, and, you know, he could on all the, was all in the family in the fucking show he's on? Uh, no, uh, it was family ties. Family ties. Um, one of those sitcoms. Yeah, he, he had a maturity to him as well. Yeah, yeah. So he can play. Yeah, yeah. So I try to think of somebody who's kind of like wise beyond their years, but still young and kind of, you know, skateboardy and whatever. Mm-hmm. I picked, uh, Jack Dylan Grazer, who, uh, most people probably remember from the It movies as, okay. uh, uh, the hypochondriac kid. I forget his name, Eddie Kasprak. And he was also in Shazam. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think he can do that thing. Like so you went, went, you went way young. Well, I was actually looking at teenage actors. Um, but for, yeah, and like I said, sure. with, with Marty, <laughs> I'm just joking. you don't, joke. <laughs> with Marty, you don't have to double cast. So he can be young throughout the whole movie. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I think that he, he can do that thing. I think he can be like surprised and scared, but also, um, illicit laughs. And, and I think he has enough like inner confidence that you can believe he would stand up to, to Biff, even if he isn't as physically, uh, comfortable. Yeah. yeah no, I think he's a, he's a solid choice. I, I think he almost skews a little too young for me though. I think you're thinking about. Him and it or whatever. He's well, he's, him and it and Shazam. I mean, like he's he looks older now. He's he's taller. He's gone through the whole puberty thing. I think he's 16, 17, maybe now. Yeah. Okay. So he it's not what 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 you used to think. I mean, they had to age him down for it chapter two because all those kids went through puberty in between movies. Yeah. 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 He's not bad. He's not bad. Uh, I think he's a good choice. Um, for my Marty, I went with, um, we actually just saw him in Pig. I went with Alex Wolf. I thought about him too. Um, he is a little older. Um, I, I think he's in his like mid twenties. Um, yeah, but I think, I think he just has a, um, I don't know. I think he has that kind of maturity to him. My, my thing is, I don't know if he can be necessarily as funny as he needs to be. Um, I've never seen, uh, but I don't know. I mean, I think he can. And actually, I think he's, I think he's brings a lot of levity to pig, even though well, pig yes. uh, itself is a fairly, um, you know, stoic and, and colder film. I think he actually is, uh, kind of, he's the, the, uh, kind of the lighter end of it, yeah. Yeah, he gets to be more of like the bigger character so, on screen. Yeah, I think. Yeah, I think he's just this, and I think he has that kind of like he could play young, but he can also seem a little more mature as well. Yeah, um, yeah. So he just worked for me, and, and I was purposely avoiding Tom Holland. 
Yeah, so was I. So that is, we were both on that wavelength. But if you cast Tom Holland as Marty McFly, mm-hmm. my honorable mention for Biff, because I think it'd be hilarious, is Timothy Chalamet. <laughs> and he would be like a different kind of bully, like more like an, like the popular kid in art school. Sure. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. No, I, the, the only reason I avoided Tom Holland, cause he is co- probably the closest to a modern day Michael J. Fox, uh, is he's a little all over the place right now. And I think yeah, people yeah. are kind of sick of him. Exactly. Um, and especially for a project like this. Um, but yeah, so my official choice was Alex Wolf. Yeah. I don't hate it. I, I think I decided to go a little younger with my pick. Anyway. Um, let's go with, let's, let's go with George, George McFly. Actually, this one was, is potentially difficult because like almost everybody in this movie, who is the modern day Crispin Glover? Has there ever been a Crispin Glover before and after Crispin Glover? Uh, so I have a, the guy I cast, I don't think you're going to know him. Um, so I have a, a backup cast as well but i think there is a modern day crispin glover you just haven't you're not thinking of him i ended up liking my answer okay and i it might be my favorite pick actually but it is it would maybe change it a little bit i try to go with the kind of similar thing lanky nerdy um self-deprecating but also like potentially funny Mm -hmm. um i went and yeah, I'll just say it. I went with uh, Lucas Hedges. He was in, he was for two years or so. Uh, him and Timothy Chalamet were in every movie to like practically together. Um, he was in, uh, what was he in? He was in Lady Bird. Yeah, he was in the, the, uh, church movie, the Pray the Gay Away. I can't remember what it was called. The, the Joel Boy Edgerton. Erased. Boy Erased. Yeah. Uh, he yeah. was in mid nineties. He played, uh, the older brother in that. Okay. Um, yeah. I, he's a very good actor. I think Lucas Hedges has a really similar, he can do nerdy, obviously, but I, it, but he also has that mystique that Crispin Glover has, like a kind of dark interiority where you're not, you know, he can, he can do more layers on that stock archetype. Mm hmm. So that was my answer. I ended up liking that. Yeah, yeah. And I think actually, even though he looks fairly young, I think he's might be 25, 26, something. Um, uh, I think he could believably play older with, uh, good costuming. Yeah, I, I think so. That makes sense. Okay. So my, my choice, again, you're not going to know who he is, but. Uh, he was in, um, the HBO Max original search party. Um, Uh-oh. his name is John Reynolds and he might look maybe a little too old. I think he's again, kind of borderline, but I think he, he was one of the more subtle characters in search party, but I think he had some of the funniest line deliveries that were in the show. He looks 40 in this picture that I'm looking at right now. Uh, is it the one with the mustache? Yeah. He looks a little younger without a mustache. I think you <laughs> could age him up and, and de-age him. I think he's about 30. Okay. Uh, anyway, uh, I just, I think he has that, 
I think he could play nerdy really well and, and just nail the delivery and mm-hmm. also convincingly like take on the confidence and stuff. I, I just, I think he's very funny. Uh, I think he's an, an actor to watch. Um, I want to see him in more stuff. If not him, just because I wanted to give you somebody who you also know. Uh, I also thought maybe Ezra Miller could work. Yeah. I mean, he's definitely on the other side of the, uh, Crispin Glover, Glover spectrum. Yeah. Like full tilt creepo. Is he I, a creep? Well, I mean, he's pretty much exclusively played creeps. Well, okay. With, like, sure, the exception but... of one or two movies. And yeah, I mean, you know, there was that incident where he like choke slammed a girl for trying to take a, his picture. Oh, Jesus. Yeah, it wasn't, it, he's still kind of like borderline canceled. Um, I think he's, oh. it depends on how well the next Flash movie does or if there is one. Um, Jesus, I did not know about that. <laughs> it was a couple years ago, but yeah, it was, it was like a Twitter viral moment. Uh, oh, but uh, yeah, so I think he was, he was what I was thinking of as like kind of the modern day Crispin Glover, but, uh, no, if he's canceled, I'll just, I'm happy with John Reynolds. <laughs> okay, well, I can't speak to him. Um, that's why I wanted to give you somebody else, but, um, uh, yeah, awkward. <laughs> I didn't know. I didn't know. I guess they, they like made up after the, the incident that was on camera. I don't know the whole story there, but you can look it up. Um, okay, okay Lorraine, George and Lorraine. So here's a couple, you know, gotta have, chemistry but also has to have chemistry with marty in a weird way right again this is why this story would never be made now yes like the oedipus complex is like beyond words and we're all just (laughs) like watching this movie like da 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 yeah it's insane um my lorraine is joey king she played one of the daughters, probably the one with the most dialogue in, um, the conjuring. She was also in the Ramona and Beezus movies. Uh, she looks familiar and I've seen all the conjuring movies, but I cannot think of, I don't, I, oh, oh, I know who, okay. She was in that uh Munchausen's by proxy movie um or mini series. Yeah. Okay, I know who you're talking about. Uh I guess I don't know. After you see that, that's kind of all I can see. <laughs> I think she's a really good actress. She was great in that uh I think it was a mini series. Yeah, I'm looking at it now the act about Gypsy Rose. Yeah. Yeah, um, I did not watch that, but I thought she was really good in The Conjuring. Um, she did a small voice part in, this is forever ago, but, um, the Oz the Great and Powerful movie with James Franco. She, she was like, did a voice character in that and I enjoyed her doing that. Um, I just, you know, the, the, the few things that I've seen her in and admittedly I've not seen her in that much, but, the few things I've seen her in, she was always sort of a standout. Mm-hmm. And um, now she's of the right age. She's, I think, uh, probably 18 or so. But I think she could play opposite Jack Grazer in those scenes. Um, and also with Lucas Hedges in those scenes. I just, uh, and I think that she has a 
a little bit of an old soul in her, a little, um, in what I've seen, I think she can age up to do adult Lorraine. Mm-hmm. Um, again, I mean, that's what's so incredible about that movie in 85 is, and maybe it was just cause when I was a kid, when I saw it, so I wasn't thinking about like, those actors as actors, I was just like the, probably the first thing I'd saw most of them in. Mm-hmm. Um, but like Leah Thompson, I don't even think of her being in age makeup in those early scenes. <laughs> I mean, just, I think you, I can, you can tell now, but yes, I know what you're talking about. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think also like they kind of cast, you know, relatively unknown people. And I think that. I think it's a lot harder to be a young unknown actor nowadays to, you know, be cast in a big movie like that. Yeah, that's um, true. So I, you know, I think that's with also- the exception of Michael J. Fox, who was huge off of television. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I mean, he was, uh, literally he was filming family ties. That was like part of his contract, contract was they yeah. could like only film at night. Um, and it was literally like doing 12 hour days of filming. And then, you know, he would go and shoot back to the future and he would get like four hours of sleep a night. And like, yeah, it was insane what he went through to be in yeah. the first one. Yeah. So, I mean, that's my Lorraine. Um, she was one of the more difficult ones for me. What about you? Uh, this one was kind of easier for me. I cast, uh, Haley Steinfeld as Lorraine. Um, I think I thought about her as well. Yeah. I, I mean, part of it is I think she could believably be Alex Wolf's past mom. Um, <laughs> uh, I, I think, you know, I think, uh, she's just incredibly charming and could really sell the comedy aspect of it. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think she could also age up and we've never really seen anything like that from her yet. Uh, but yeah. I, I think, you know, with the right makeup and stuff, she could pull it off. The only, my only real hang up is I think she might be a little young to play across John Reynolds. Um, but maybe I just have very different visions in my head because he's like 30 and she's like 25. So it's not that crazy. Yeah. Um, but you know, I've only seen him play in this one show really. And I've seen her kind of in a bunch of stuff since she was a little kid. So I think maybe that's sort of just stuck in my head. Um, Yeah. We probably still think of her as 14 and true grit when she's now a full blown adult. I mean, yeah, kind of, but you know, I just watched Hawkeye and she was in that. um, Oh, okay. I didn't know. I didn't know she was in that. I I liked her a lot in um, the edge of 17. I thought she was really good in that. She's great in Bumblebee. I've really yeah. liked her in everything I've seen her in. Um, and I just, I think she has that charming charisma, you know, that, that kind of like, you know, you instantly fall in love with this kind of person, uh, quality, that star quality. Yeah, for sure. Um, okay. Is Doc the last one we have here? Yeah. Doc's the last one we have. Okay. Yeah. Like I said, I have a list. <laughs> um, these are people who all could do it. Um, yeah. as, for, as far as I'm concerned, do you want to just read me your list? Yeah. Okay. Uh, of the ones that I looked at who were age appropriate, I have Jim Carrey. Okay. I have Nicholas Cage. <laughs> okay. And I have Michael Sheen. 
Oh, ooh, okay. He's a wild card. I had both Jim Carrey and Nicolas Cage. Uh, I literally was thinking about like how Nicolas Cage and Alex Wolf had such good chemistry in Pig. Oh, I was like it'd be kind of fun to see him to see them swap. Yeah, yeah, swap um, energy. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, Jim Carrey, I could see. I think. I mean, I think like- Jim Carrey is the closest to to the same energy as well, Christopher Lloyd the, at that time. Here's the thing though. I But it's I almost like, too easy. It's a, it, I you know what here's my fear with casting Jim Carrey in that role. Yes. Is I think he would be doing a Christopher Lloyd impression through the prism of Jim Carrey in the same way that he was doing Frank Gorshin as the Riddler in uh Batman Forever. Okay. I see my my issue with Jim Carrey. Uh I th- I th- I mean of course he's fucking Jim Carrey like he he yeah. it would be so much fun to see him just you know uh totally mad scientist it up but I I I don't know I was thinking of like Dr. Robotnik because that is literally a mad scientist character and I just I wonder if he would play it a little too broad. Uh, well, it's Jim Carrey, of course he's going to play it broad. That's yeah, not exactly. even the question. And, and, I feel and it's like, a broad character. It's not like, not like there's a lot of like subtle nuances to Doc Brown, but. No, um, but there's something about Christopher Lloyd that is a little more believable than I think Jim Carrey might be. Jim Carrey would be funny, but he'd be doing a character. Yeah. And, and I. Yeah. For me, I want someone who has, who can do that character, but can also deliver in a believability way. In, in a like, yeah, okay, he is just this like crazy old scientist with a teenage intern who can travel back in time. You know what I mean? Like, right. I did think Jim Carrey, but I kind of nixed him off my list. I kind of, I nixed Nicolas Cage off of mine for the same reason. When you get manic Nicolas Cage, it's so, Nicholas, you know what I mean? It's so performative. Yeah. I mean, and it, it, it could go that way for sure. Uh, but I also don't think that's necessarily bad for that part. And I do think that he would, he would blend into the scenery more than Jim Carrey would, even if he's doing shtick. Yes. I, I do agree with that. What, who was your last choice? Michael Sheen, which, um, ah, is yeah. probably my favorite choice, but he probably wouldn't get the part because he's not famous enough. Uh, yeah, I think. Of but I think he's option. the he's the most like character actor of the bunch. Yeah, I can. I like that. I like that. Of of your choices, he'd be my pick. Yeah. So I I also had quite a list. Um, I'll just I'll read off who I was considering and then who I finally landed on. Okay. Um. Uh, I was thinking, uh, John C. Riley, of course, but I decided not to go with him because I can't cast him in everything. <laughs> You've tried. Uh, yeah. I, I put a moratorium on myself on John C. Riley, although I think he could fucking nail it. It would be a different take, but it'd be acceptable. Uh, I, another very different take I thought that could be very fun would be Bob Odenkirk. Oh yeah, he'd be he'd be a bit more of like a grumpy doc than a yeah. Uh, but I kind of like that. But but we're edging a little too close, maybe to Rick and Morty territory. Oh, for sure. Yeah, I thought Bill Hader, but he's a little too young. 
he could age up though. That's not, that's not anything. Yeah. Uh, I also thought of gender swapping this one and doing Catherine O'Hara. Well, I uh, want her in every movie. Yeah. In the same right. way that you want John C. Riley in every movie, I want Catherine O'Hara in every movie. So. I mean, she'd be brilliant. She'd be, and yeah. I think she would be fucking down. Like she could definitely nail, uh, the character, give us something great and give us something you know, and not just give us a, uh, a copy of Christopher Lloyd. Lloyd. Yeah. It'd be its own thing. Yeah. But the, the, my number one that I ended up landing on was, uh, Sasha Baron Cohen. I thought of him too. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think he, you know, he's just so good at characters, but he's good at disappearing into them. And Uh I think he could give me that same, uh, believability that Christopher Lloyd had. Yeah. And yeah, he's really fucking funny. I mean, yeah. all of these people are really funny. This is, you know, a murderer's row of character actors. Yeah, for sure. Um, there's a embarrassment of riches in choosing someone to play this character because it's so big. Yeah. And yeah, I, I, I like all of those choices. So there's that. I mean, don't do it. Don't do it. But if you do it, maybe no, uh, consult no. us. No, don't. <laughs> don't, don't, don't. The, I, the only way I could see even approaching this material is to just totally let it be its own thing. Like no Marty, no nothing. Like its own characters. Yeah, at that point. It's own, it's just a... But at that point, it's why even call it back to the future other than the branding? Yeah. So that's, uh, that is that. We're almost an hour in. Let's go ahead and get talking <laughs> about the movies. Yeah. The Tender Bar was the movie that we reviewed this week for the main review. All right. So this is uh, directed by George Clooney, and it is based on a memoir by J.R. Moenringer about his life uh, growing up in the 70s and 80s in New York. Um, and it's adapted by William Monaghan who has done a lot of crime stuff. He, he did the screenplay for The Departed, as well as um, uh, Body of Lies, Edge of Darkness, a bunch of stuff like that. Um, moody crime stuff for the most part. So this is kind of different. But basically, this tells the story of a young uh, J.R. when he and his mother are forced to move in with their father, played by Christopher Lloyd, uh, after her husband goes MIA and, uh, quits paying child support and, uh, you know, kind of goes the deadbeat route. Um, they move into this house in the suburbs of New York where, uh, their uncle Charlie played by Ben Affleck is also, uh, residing. And Ben Affleck also runs a bar called the Dickens, which is like a Charles Dickens based literature bar. Um, and, uh, JR, young JR, who's still a child, uh, played by Daniel Ranieri at first in later, uh, parts of the movie. He's played by Ty Sheridan. He, you know, kind of takes to Uncle Charlie as this surrogate father figure who's trying to, you know, teach him about what it is to be a man and what it is to be honorable and what professions he should go into, which ones he should, should not go into, how you're supposed to date and treat women and, you know, all of the you know rules to life, 
essentially. Mm-hmm. Uh, mother is pushing uh, young JR into uh, getting accepted into an Ivy League school, ends up working out for him. He, uh, he applies and uh, gets into Yale with a scholarship and, uh, you know, uh, ends up working as a low level editor or copy boy in the New York Times. And yeah, it's pretty much just, uh, it's a coming of age story about him sort of coming up and trying to figure things out along the way. Yeah. I mean, this, this movie, um, in particular isn't really about plot, you know, it's very much no. a memoir. Um, uh, you know, so it's, it's funny you mentioning all these things that happen. Yeah. But it's like, that's not really what the movie's about, you know? Right. Um, yeah, I guess that's a, a, a good place to start. Um, you mentioned the writer, William Monahan, um, wrote all these crime, this crime stuff. You can kind of feel that in the first like 20 minutes of this <laughs> where it feels very good fellasy. Sure. Yeah. I mean, there, it's, it's a bunch of tough guy stuff, you know, city, city folk, um, mm. uh, blue collar, you know, world weary, type of dialogue that's especially from Ben Affleck, who's, who's basically the main character. Like, even though this movie is supposedly about JR, the movie's far more interested in Ben Affleck. Yeah. I think also like the Goodfellas quality came from the voiceover being done by Ron Livingston. And he sounds very like Ray Liotta in it. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, so, that's something that's weird to me is the voiceover is Ron Livingston, mm-hmm. but adult JR was played by Ty Sheridan. Like Ty Sheridan's not that, not that young. Like why not just have him do the narration? Yeah. I don't know. I guess they wanted to have sort of a degree of separation there. Like, you know, I don't know. I yeah. guess, I guess he's, I guess he's the one who's writing the memoir while. Yeah. As like a middle-aged person or something. I don't know. I thought that was a weird choice. Maybe um, uh, Ty Sheridan just didn't have that that kind of thoughtful literary narration kind of voice that they're looking for. I guess I don't know. It's it, it's just weird to me. Um, it's a thought. But yeah, yes, you're right. Uh, this movie is way more interested in in Ben Affleck as Uncle Charlie, um, uh, who, like you said, is is you know this masculine father figure. Um, for JR because his, his actual father is, you know, pretty absent. And when he is there, he's just an asshole. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, just like a completely irredeemable asshole. Um, with, you know, th- it was kind of two dimensional asshole. Yeah. I actually credit the actor. Ultimately, I kind of felt that way about most everybody in the movie. Mm-hmm. With the exception of Ben Affleck, who I think is given the most to do, yeah. um, because the screenplay gives him the most to say, mm-hmm. uh, everybody else is kind of playing stock. Everybody else is kind of, you know, a, a, a pretty thinly written character, mm-hmm. uh, through most of the movie. Uh, but I actually credit, um, well, Max Martini is the name of the actor who plays his, his father, his deadbeat father, who's also a radio DJ. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually credit him for like bringing like a physicality to the role 
and he's able to sort of bring what the script doesn't. And I think most everybody here does that to some extent. I really credit Ty Sheridan because um, this character is so passive that it's really obnoxious. Like from seeing every single scene, whether it's by his roommates or his uncle Charlie or his girlfriend at the time or his mother or his real dad, every single scene is him sitting there nodding his head while everybody explains everything to him. And that's yeah. his character. Like he does, he, he almost makes no, uh, choices in the film yeah. that are his I, alone. I mean, that's kind of what the movie's about, but yeah, it does. It also wears pretty thin pretty quick. Right. We, I mean, there's, there's, I think Ty Sheridan is so good at being an interior actor mm-hmm. that he, creates a character on screen that on page is not there. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with that. I mean, the, yeah, this movie's fine. It's like, <laughs> what? I don't know. It, it was whatever. It, like, it wasn't bad. It wasn't yeah. like I was watching it and I was like, Oh God. But also it was like, I don't know. I wasn't particularly captivated. It was, it, it just kind of was going on. You know what I mean? It's, yeah, it's kind of by the numbers, um, genre, uh, you know, uh, coming of age stuff. Um, and, and sort of a nostalgia piece as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, and I think given how well worn these genres are, even like, even within like this, um, we've seen people take on this material in different ways or subvert it or do something different with it to make it not feel like the same thing we've seen a hundred times. And specifically, I think of two movies that this movie or was like the less good version of, um, that we've seen recently from the same director. Um, I, I thought a lot about Boyhood, mm-hmm. um, by Richard Linklater and then also Linklater's, uh, college movie um everybody wants some which was like kind of mid-tier link later but still vastly more entertaining and watchable for just the the dude figuring himself out in college movie than what we get here which is the best stuff in the movie in my opinion is when he leaves when he leaves the family and I was like, okay, he's going to start developing and having like a, an internal life and like have, and then they, they like jump from first month of freshman year to graduating in like 15 minutes. Um, yeah, there, there was also this kind of through line with this girlfriend that. Yeah. It's a one that got away story and, uh, but and it, it plays so weirdly yeah. because a lot of it is like, they're not together. All we see is her repeatedly like dumping him. And it, it just feels like, it just feels weird. Like in, in like normally, you know, you get this romance, you get, you get, you want these characters to be together. Uh, And there's a little bit of that, you know, when they first, kind of hook up but i think that i think the actress uh brianna middleton i think she's great 
I think I don't she's have a problem with the actress. I, I think she's a, uh, effervescent. I think she brings a, a lot to what's not really there on the page. Sure, but um, but no, I know what you're saying. I know where I, you're no, going. I, with yeah, that. I I didn't have a problem with her performance. My my problem was I think she likes the character more than the movie does. The the move well, the movie was it. It literally like just keeps cutting to these scenes where she dumps him. Or, or like refuses to get with, you know, get back together with him. And I think, I mean, I know what they're trying to say with that character. I know what they're trying to imply. It's that girlfriend, like you said, the one that got away. It's the one that you think you can resolve some, something with, but you never can. And you always feel like it's just within reach, but then it keeps slipping away. And it's because you're on a different wavelength. I, I get that. But what I'm saying is, they never give you the, they never give you the, she is within reach moments. Like every time she's on screen, she's dumping him or, you know, like it just is very weird to me. It is a very well, weird. They try, I think they were trying to sort of like montage that a little bit. I don't know. And it, it doesn't really work as a montage because it can't really like commit for that little stretch when they're covering that relationship, they, they go into scene work too much for it to, to work as montage. And yeah. so instead of like it being this comedic, like, Oh, she's dumping me again. Oh, she's dumping me again. Instead. It's like, Oh, they're, they're not together. Oh, I guess they are. Oh, I guess they're not. Yeah. Like, so, so it, it play, it plays weird. That's more of a pacing issue. But, but it, it, it sets this, I don't know. Because I, I got it. Like, basically, she wants to hook up, and she doesn't take him seriously because he doesn't come from wealth. No, I, and I, I understand all of that. I understand it. I just, it to me, this part of the movie stood out as really awkward and weird. And I, I felt like, I felt like it was very um, mean to the the character of, of the girlfriend. I, For sure. I agree with you. I think the actress is doing a great job with very little. And very, I actually think she might be doing too good of a job. I, I get again, you know, it's a memoir. It's a coming of age story. I understand all the the sure, story and, and stuff. I'm, I'm sure that the, in the memo, in the actual memoir in the book, that there are you know chunks of prose that explain her and fill out that character in a I, much better way. But I just, yeah, I feel like those scenes in particular. um just didn't really do anything for the story in any kind of like, I don't know it, that whole section just felt weird to me. That whole uh chunk. I, I don't right. know. It feels like it's just kind of wedged in there. It it doesn't really, um, well, you yeah, know, cause it, it doesn't really have anything to do with his development into becoming a writer, but the movie's not really that interested in that either. Right. Um, it doesn't, really you know inform the relationship with uncle charlie which is what the movie's the most interested in you, you know like right what this movie is is uh ben affleck is a father figure to this kid who doesn't have a, a good dad uh and you know sets him on this path of becoming a man but it, that stuff is fine i mean ben affleck's i think really you know he's really good in this uh it just feels like underwritten, especially a sto- uh, movie about a writer. Yeah. I don't know. 
No, yeah, I, I 100% agree. I think there's just not much going on here. You know, yeah, uh, and there's it's, not much dramatic tension either. Like the, I think there's potential for there to be dramatic tension, but again, well, yeah, I mean, there's this this whole thing with the dad, and you know, there's eventually yeah. kind of a confrontation with the dad, but and the mother gets sick at one point, and then they just kind of forget about that. Christopher Lloyd disappears from the movie. I know, and I really enjoyed that scene. Well. Like, I don't know. I felt a little sorry for him in general. I felt like he was a little weekend at Bernie'd throughout the the scenes he was in. No, I I thought uh like I thought the movie was the most focused uh when JR was a kid, when he was, you know, really little. So because- I actually I like the college stuff more, but the movie was already like ramped up to another gear at that point so we didn't really get to soak any of that in well so i i feel like the college stuff could have been should have been more interesting but yeah Yeah. i felt like it it just kind of felt like a different movie at that point Mm -hmm. well it is it's like two movies it's it's boyhood and then it switches gear and turns into everybody wants them yeah Um, I, i think it does the boyhood stuff better is what i'm saying than the than the college stuff. Like, I, I don't know. I just, I don't know. I, I, I guess I disagree a little bit on that only because by the second half of the movie, it seems to rely less on, on narration. It seems a little less on track, but, but then it doesn't really do anything yeah, and it, with it any of its options. And it doesn't really pay off any of the relationships. I guess I was just more invested in the performances of the second half of the movie, mostly Ty Sheridan, who, who I'll say this about, you know, if I got anything out of this movie, he is, he is now a full blown adult actor. You can give this guy good shit. Yeah. Yeah. I think he's great. I think. Again, uh, I think for the most part, all the actors are, are pretty good. It's just, yeah, the movie's kind of all over the place and super generic. Yeah. Again, it's fine. It's a fine enough. It's very inoffensive, mm-hmm. but there's also, I think the reason why I didn't like the second half as much was there just was no real dramatic tension. And, and I, you know, I felt like it needed to come from somewhere. It needed to come from his relationship with Uncle Charlie or or with his mom or with this girl or with the dad, but it could kind of couldn't decide. Like, right. Like if there had been a moment of conflict between him and Charlie, that would, that's what the movie needs. It almost kind of sets up for that because he needs a moment to become his own man, to become his own person outside of what, you know, the rules of the road that Charlie's given him his entire life. If there was a moment where like, you know, Charlie tried to like give him a a one-on-one man talk when he was just not in the mood for it. And he could kind of like have a scene to say, you know what? Like I actually disagree with you right now. Or, or like, or, or yeah. something. Or, or like, um, I thought it was going to be like, you know, when he kind of grows up, he has all these aspirations of being a writer. And, right. You know, he sees his uncle who's just always been working at this bar. I thought it was going to kind of come from that of like, oh, now you think you're better than me, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. I, yeah, like yeah, I yeah. need to get out of this life kind of stuff, but it, he seemed pretty fine. Like, 
He didn't yeah, really just- want to go to school. He didn't really care for his uh, job at the New York Times. Like, that's what I mean. There was just kind of no story at the end. Yeah, no, I mean, there's story elements, but they don't, um, they don't play out with any like clear arc. Yeah. Um, yeah. So in the end, it just kind of comes off as a little aimless and a little generic. Um, again, I didn't hate it either. It, it is like a hair better than made for te- television kind of stuff. Um, yeah. I mean, I didn't hate it. It's watchable. It's, yeah. You know, it, it's, if, it has if, moments of charm. I think that and... everybody involved has just done better stuff, whether it be Monahan as a writer, whether it be Clooney as a director. Clooney, I am so disappointed in George Clooney as a director because <laughs> he came out of the gate swinging with Confessions of a Dangerous Mind and Good Night and Good Luck. You know, I was like, man fucking leading man can direct movies like hell. And then he didn't for a while. And he just kind of petered out as a director. Mm. Like he's still, I haven't really seen him on screen all that much either, but to start out that strong and then to like make these kind of whatever movies like Leatherheads and, and, and this, I don't know like where his instincts went. Like he went from being like, you know, good night and good luck was, was uh up for multiple Academy Awards, uh, including Best Picture. So, yeah, I don't know. Uh, that's just on, on a different rant, but I give this a C plus. It's fine. Yeah, I yeah, that's I think pretty much what I give it to. I I think that's exactly what it deserves. It's it's completely inoffensive, mm-hmm. um, but there's not really much point to watching it. No, I mean you've. You can watch any coming coming of age movie made in the last like thirty five years, and it's this good or better. Yeah, I mean, I liked watching Ben Affleck. I like, you know, I I like, yeah, I do like the performances, but yeah, it's it's just fine. Yeah, C C plus is great. That's a perfect score. Um. Okay, let's talk about. The streaming homework, which you assigned me, this is Metallica, some kind of monster. Mm-hmm. What What is this about? Yeah, so this is a documentary about the heavy metal band Metallica. May have heard um, of them. This, this obscure little indie group. Uh-huh. They had just lost their bassist, Jason Newstead, and were kind of reeling from that and... Uh, they lost him due to, you know, creative differences. He, he, you know, had a side project going that he just decided was more interesting to him creatively. So he left the biggest fucking rock band in the world. Um, I can't remember what their name is. Echo Brain? Echo Brain, one album. Yeah. <laughs> um, so he left the, you know, but I, yeah, he's happens. still doing stuff. He has a band now called Newstead. Yeah, I mean, he's, yeah. he, he's a fantastic bassist. Like, he's going to keep working forever. It's just, yeah. um, you know, it's literally the biggest uh, metal band in the world at kind of their peak. Right, but let's be clear. It wasn't just that he was like, oh, I'm going to go do this other thing. No. Yeah. It was that they were in between album cycles, and he said, hey, is it okay if I go do this other thing while we're waiting? And everybody in the band's like, no. You yes. are Metallica only. And that's when he was like, ah, fuck you a little. 
yes. I, I mean, for sure. It is justified why he, <laughs> he left. Um, anyway, so he, again, the band is in this period of limbo. Mm-hmm. Uh, he leaves. Uh, they decide that they're going to, you know, record a, a new album. They sort of feel like, okay, well, if he left because we're in between things and, you know, let's move on to the next thing. So they hire this documentary crew to document the the recording process. And as they are recording, you know, the band has some serious issues that they need to work through that are, you know, kind of brought on by Jason leaving the band. You know, Lars Ulrich has a tendency to be uh, a bit controlling. Uh, James Hetfield has had, you know, some alcohol and uh, abuse issues that he was dealing with. Uh, Kirk Hammett just wanted to play guitar solos. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and so as they're, rec- as they're working, trying to put this album together, um, th- they decide they're going to bring a therapist into the mix. Yeah. And do these like group therapy sessions to try and keep the band together to, to get everybody's creative input into the process versus, you know, creating this toxic controlling atmosphere. But during this process, James Hetfield leaves kind of abruptly to go to rehab. And as he comes back and, you know, there's a good chunk of the movie where they're just like, He's still in rehab. We don't know what the fuck's going on. Yeah, we're talking months, not yeah. like, you know, not like a couple weeks. Like, he was gone for, like, six months. Where, you know, he has very little to to no communication with them. Yeah. And then as he comes out, you know, he understandably decides he wants to work on his life and himself um, and what that means outside of Metallica and... You know, so there's still a lot of tension in the band because he, you know, wants a, a work day where he's done by four o'clock in the afternoon, he, you know, and, and, you know, notoriously rock and roll is kind of not a nine to five job. Right. Um, Especially and- when you're paying millions of dollars a day to for recording space. Yeah. And to have your producer there all the time and your songwriters and collaborators and your yeah, therapist and your therapist, like they're just burning money this entire time. And then James, James comes back and says, and I can only work basically four hours a day. Yeah. Like one uh, of the lead songwriters, lead singer, lead guitar player. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, really Metallica has always been James Hetfield and Lars Holerich. And yep. again, Kirk, Kirk Hammett, bless him, bless him so much. <laughs> he's just like the, the most we get from Kirk Hammett, the most upset we get. Is, so also the, the album they're working on, uh, was Saint Anger. So yeah, they're which, trying to kind of reinvent themselves again. Came out in with, 2004. Uh, the recording process probably started in what? To like late 2002? Maybe even earlier. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And. <laughs> And, uh, you know, at the time, new metal was becoming very popular. Like, yeah, yeah. metal as a genre was definitely shifting gears and there was growing pains going on. Was yeah. Trying to both reinvent themselves and stay relevant, uh, as they kind of had, you know, before in the nineties, mm-hmm. uh, uh, <laughs> from, you know, kind of the more thrash metal to, um, 
like the alternative rock and groove yeah, metal yeah. era. Yeah. And so that, you know, they're kind of trying to keep up with the trend, but also stay ahead of the curve. But my favorite part of the whole fucking movie was when they're arguing over guitar solos and Kirk Hammett's just like, I want to play guitar solos. <laughs> like if we don't have guitar solos, that dates the music. And I also, you know, I do agree with him. I think he, yeah. he was right in that particular argument. He um, was. Yeah. But it's just like, you know, uh, Lars and James would just kind of go at each other, literally like this old married couple that had been together for 50 years and just for some reason never gotten divorced. Yeah. And he's just kind of there, uh, and just like wants to play music. <laughs> right. Well, he's the least confrontational out of the group. Even, you know, we don't see them with Jason in the group, but you, you understand that obviously there were personality clashes there as yeah. well. And Kirk has always kind of been the most zen, the most kind of like, you know, his own, he's just kind of willing to just be supportive to the band, which is exactly what you have to be in that band because it is the James and Lars show. Yeah. It is two very, very big personalities. um, Yeah. Competing with each other. And, you know, when they work together, when it all syncs up, you know, they create magic. They, you know, they've, created some of the most iconic rock and roll songs of all time. Right. But yeah, they, they definitely needed to get through this period where they, they kind of, you know, were losing themselves as people uh, because when you're in a band, that's the biggest fucking band in the world. It's very easy to lose your sense of self. It's very easy to lose that identity. What I think is interesting about this documentary I think there's a lot uh, interesting. There's a lot. Yeah, it, it, yeah. It's, it's a, it's a, it's a juicy watch, but, yeah. um, you don't even have to necessarily be a fan of Metallica or metal or anything like that to kind of get the drums out of, out of what's going well, yeah, on. Here. I mean, they make this, this situation very clear and there are some, there is some footage that I am shocked they left in. Yeah. I mean, it is definitely warts and all to the, to, oh, maybe to the band's detriment. But what I think is interesting about it is this kind of meditation on, you know, this sort of a subtextual thing happening in the movie, this sort of meditation on what it's like to be a career musician, where it's not about, you know. Not, not just career musician, but celebrity career musician. Right. I mean, where, yeah, because you're not, if they're not just hired guns, like studio hands or whatever, or people who play in a club once a week or something like that. I mean, these, they are the biggest band in in the world and their job J O B is their office job is to be the biggest band in the world. Yeah. Which where everything that includes and everything they do, every like piece of merch they do, every haircut they get every, you know, song title, every guitar solo or lack thereof. Um, that was is, another really funny moment was when they were <laughs> later in the documentary, when they've basically come a, a, over a lot of their issues mm-hmm. and they're debating on the name of the band and, uh, you mean the, the album, the album. And yeah. everybody's like, yeah, St. Anger, like that's so great. It, the marketing rights itself, St. Anger's day is going to be this day. And Lars Ulrich's just like, I like the name frantic. Right. Yeah. <laughs> 
I just, uh, I got a kick at it. There, there are a lot of moments like that, though, where I'm just, like, cracking up. Oh, yeah. I mean, there is a lot of, there's a lot of, like, unintentional spinal tap throughout this <laughs> yeah. whole thing. Whether, you know, at the beginning when you see, like, James driving his ridiculous hot rod down the Golden Gate Bridge or or you see Kirk w- with this like flowy pink shirt on a horse ranch um yeah like or or you hear uh Lars talking ab- about his art that he collects this monumental oh my god art. yes yeah. and and how he's he's just got to sell it all and start new and just yeah. like you know, these fucking yeah. original Jackson Pollock paintings. Yeah, uh, so there's a there's a lot of uh there's a lot of like spinal tappy st- well, type there's, stuff. There's a this. lot of um lack of self awareness, but there is also you know, there is self awareness. You know, I mean they they, know, they allowed the movie to come out the way that it did and, and yeah, they and, they, and they had they, to have know, known that they were not always shown in the best of light uh given the edit but anyway i want to go back to what i was saying where i was saying what i think is uh interesting about the movie is as you know outside of these scenes or outside of these um scenarios is this idea that they have to they have to get it together it's not a matter of whether or not you know writing these songs or going out on stage or mm-hmm. or you know being metal whatever that means anymore um when you're making that much money and it's not just yourself making money, you're making an industry all this money. Yeah. Because it, it isn't just them. It is the yeah. producers. It is the, the people in the sound booth. It is, you know, when they go on tour, it's the roadies. Like, yeah. I mean, like it, not, it's not just a band. They are employers. They, they, yeah. they run a fucking business and it's a big business. And the business is Metallica. And, and so when they're in a situation when basically anybody else in any kind of employment situation would just be like, fuck this. Like yeah. <laughs> long since fuck this. Um, they have to keep the gears turning and they're doing everything they can to make this machine run. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, well, to, to make this machine run without obliterating themselves. Right. And with, and while at least coming off semi interested in their own work in an artistic way. Yeah. Right. Even yeah, if they're I mean, not, even if it's entirely cynical and they're just like, we got to just pump this album out because we've been spending millions of dollars for the last two years. Um, oh, I, I, and, and I don't think they did that. I, I, I do think they made I the album think, they wanted to make. Yeah. I think, I mean, here's the thing. St. Anger. I, it's not a good album. It is. Yeah, there, there are some weird production issues that make it almost unlistenable. Of um, all of the things that was in that movie, no, there, nobody talks about the drum sound. The canned fucking drums. Well, they do, they, they do talk about the drums. They, they talk, well, they talk about Lar, Lars, like, yeah, they being don't talk in, the, in the mood or not in the mood or whatever. Well, they, they don't. Yeah. They, they nobody's don't ever talk talking about the about audio like, production. The tone. <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, but here's the thing. Or like James, like half rap singing, not a good, like, but those things are, they are choices. You know what I mean? Like uh, they, they are, sure were. they are swings. And I think for the most part, they're misses. I, I do mm. think this documentary makes that music sound better than the eventual album did. 
Well, uh, it at least contextualizes it. Yeah, exactly. And, yeah. and like, you know, some of the, the lyrics that when you are just hearing it on the radio are corny as fuck, like hearing them kind of break it down. I was like, when you say it, it's not, when you say it like that, it's not so bad. Your lifestyle is my death style. Again, yes, exactly. But, <laughs> but when they're like, when they're in it and they're like, yeah, that's fucking cool. I'm like, okay, I can see how you think that's cool. And then when you hear, but when I heard it in, uh, in the song, it's like, oh, that's corny as fuck. Yeah. I mean, I mean, yeah, but I, I, I do think, I do think they are being artists and sometimes that does mean bad art. Like mm-hmm. art is a process. It's not a result. And. And I think that is also an interesting thing about this movie is, especially in the context now that we are, you know, with Metallica now Mm -hmm. and how, you know, they, they kind of went back to roots and, and sort of reinvented themselves again as, um, and, you know, just, I've tried to listen to same anger a couple times and it's not listenable. It's, it's not good, but they're, (laughs) taking risks they are you know what i mean like yeah you're even like a load and reload apologist yeah I so mean, it's not like you're like has to be 87 bay area thrash or nothing no not at all and i think <laughs> since saint anger they've put out uh you know even though it might maybe isn't as inspired i think you know like death magnetic and stuff had some good you know they kind of go back to basics a little bit but uh I, musically it's better Right. Well, at this point, they are, and even at the point of when San Anger came out, even at the point the load and reload came out, they are such a legacy act that it really does not matter what they do. Like they could just keep putting out garbage, and nobody is gonna is gonna care because what I mean, they they do they do care, and I I do think they care. Yes, say everything else you will about Metallica, and you can say it all. Uh, I do appreciate that about them. Like they could phone it the fuck in, mm-hmm. you know, but now, now they're what in their sixties and I'm sure they're still have m- moments like these in the recording studio. Like oh, they I give it guarantee shit. it. Yeah. I mean, it's not like they, you know, p- they're not pumping them out like they used to. They're, now it's like about a, every six years of an album, which is pretty common for a band after a certain time or whatever especially if you're a band that can just live off the proceeds of the black album for the rest of your life yeah for sure and that's i think that's, that's literally still charting probably so yeah, yeah that, I, that's what i'm saying is like there's such a legacy band now that it's like that it doesn't like we, we get the snapshot of this awkward period but you know it doesn't matter how bad that album was going to be they're still the guys who essentially invented thrash and to, sure. and moved the evolution of heavy metal like hundred yards past the you know the the, the state of where it was before it. Exactly, um, and and I think it also humanizes them in a way that you know, like again, seeing them go through all these things, seeing them struggle with this idea of like. We want it to be good. We want it to be cool. We want, you know, mm-hmm. and this was, you know, uh, Lars Ulrich was still dealing with his Napster lawsuit. Oh yeah. That's happening all in the background of everything. 
Um, I mean, yeah, this like, was, this was like, for a lot of reasons, a difficult period. And, and, and what makes it an interesting documentary is it is kind of this really volatile period in the band. Um, one thing that kind of stood out to me, you know, whatever you want to say about the band and their like history with, with alcohol and alcoholica and all of that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, certainly James has been very, forthright about his recovery and, and, um, you know, his other stints in rehab since this movie and whatever. It is clear if you know anything about like the language of, of addiction and, and recovery that these guys are so codependent, codependent. Yes. They're mm-hmm. so codependent that there's people in their circle who should not be in their circle that they have glommed onto and they've accepted as being part of the, this creative process. Um, I can't tell you how slimy I, I felt from that ther- occupational therapist from scene one. Oh yeah. And as the movie goes and he like insinuates himself more and more in the band to the point where he's in the room when they're writing lyrics like throwing out suggestions. Yeah, that. And, and then and, he's like talking about maybe moving to San Francisco now and be, like becoming full-time Metallica. Yeah. And, and, and they were, you know, in the, and they're trying to be nice about it. These conversations yeah. without him of like, how the fuck do we fire this guy? Right. Like, and I was just like, you oh, are God. And then when they, and then there's a scene in the movie where they, they show them firing him. Yeah. And it is fucking awkward. It, it, it should have been more awkward and it should, it should have oh, been. Oh no, it is just where it needed to be because that <laughs> dude. I mean, he was there much longer because they even say like, we're starting to feel kind of like weird about this relationship, but at the same time, now we kind of need him because like they're so afraid to like take the floaties off and learn to swim. Well, and oh god, but when he was just like, well, I, you know, I don't want to interrupt our progress. I was just like, oh god, like, this is the most ah oh, fuck this. Right. Yeah. It, it is. He is such juicy. a worm. It is juicy. This this whole movie is juicy. And like, and I, I I don't think Bob Rock like totally comes off great either. Uh, I think no, I actually. Yeah. I, I mean I. I'm sure he's, he's a, you know, world class record producer, got a good sound out of him. Well, you know. he didn't, he, he didn't say anything well, about the drums apparently. Well, in uh, not that particular record, but you know, he also produced yeah. a black album and kind of helped them reinvent themselves there. He's been a long time collaborator. They consider him almost kind of their fifth member in a way. Mm-hmm. But I think like, especially at this point in the band's career, He's like Mr. like military dad about everything. And that is not what they needed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I mean, here's the thing. If, if you're listening to us and you're interested in, well, again, I, I think this movie is very much about, you know, the artistic process. And, and like you said, that, that how, how art and commerce and when, yeah, when being a performer is your job and yeah. And, yeah. and you know, even if none of that interests you, there is some juicy, juicy drama in this movie. Oh yeah. This is like pre reality television. Yeah. 
but it ha it, you get all the goods that you get from like reality television, but it's not scripted. Yeah. And, and it's also, you know, uh, kind of, you know, kind of a follow up to their behind the music, which is way more forgiving. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And just produced and, and, um, you know, there, there's also a lot of interesting stuff about recovery and about mm -hmm. forgiveness and about, uh, uh, you know, I think there are a lot of good lessons. Like there's a really interesting conversation between Lars and, um, Dave Mustaine. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Which, Which almost like, feels, there's a couple scenes in here that almost did feel scripted because it's, it just like the movie needs it too much. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, why would, why would Dave Mustaine, I mean, I get it. Like, if anyone doesn't know the rock and roll history, um, Dave Mustaine was originally the second lead guitarist before Kirk Hammett was in the band. Um, they eventually had to kick him out right before they signed because he was dealing with his addiction stuff way early mm -hmm. um, and was a big mess and was taking the band down with him, or at least that's how they felt at the time, despite the fact that he wrote most of the songs of the first two Metallica albums, uh, at least those guitar parts. And, you know, Kirk had to learn them really fast. But yeah, so then he, you know, he, he, uh, creates Megadeth as a revenge spite band to get, to, to try and outpopular Metallica, which never happened, but he got pretty close a couple times. Yeah. But, I mean, he, he but that was all, all right. like 1983, whatever, like 1983, 84. Why would he come back in 2004 and have this much spite and resentment in him, but I guess it's Dave Mustaine. Also, you know, I mean, people like that who you worked with for so long, collaborated, like, you know, it, it gets to the point where you either totally burn that bridge or you do at some, you know, you do continue these relationships with people. And yeah, it, it would make sense for Lars to reach out to him if he, you know, if he hasn't heard from, James Hetfield in weeks, uh, months, you know, like, yeah. you know, I think it makes sense that he would need some kind of perspective on this. Right. Um, and it's not like Metallica and Megadeth hadn't collaborated within that time period. They're, you know, the Monsters of Rock tour and all that stuff. Yeah, exactly. So, so it, it they were still in the same that, circles that they, you know, would still be communicating and, and stuff, but, um, yeah. Yeah. No, I thought this documentary was fascinating. I thought it was, um, and you know, it, I thought that it's a long movie. It's two and a half hours, but I think it kind of breezes by because there's just so much kind of always happening. Yeah. The, the story is constantly shifting. It's constantly, uh, uh, another problem arises or whatever. Um, you know, there's always the, in the background of the movie, the search for the next bass player, which kind of like, uh, closes out the film. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, I, I, I'm glad I saw it. I kind of avoided it for a lot of years because I knew that it was some of, some of that therapy stuff was like hard to watch and oh, still I didn't like, think it was hard to watch. I thought it was like, I, I mean, it's, it's intense and, and awkward and, and yeah, there's a lot of emotions and and testosterone flying, but it is just like I right. was I couldn't stop watching. It was just like fascinated. Well, now now I think I can because I can kind of 
I can take like like I said, I can like appreciate how unintentionally campy a lot of it is. Like this the yeah. you know, living like the millionaire metal life. Yeah. And trying to like still look cool while you're like, you know, worth more than some whole countries. <laughs> and uh just kind of appreciate that for what it is. And also I can kind of appreciate it on a story level, what it's trying to do. Yeah, yeah. I mean that's the other thing is there is a lot of drama. There's a lot of um there's like, a lot of entertainment factor. Yeah. Like how much whiny Lars can you deal with? I mean, Lars is a lot, but again, I think I think this movie like especially the stuff with his dad, and that's what I mean, is there's a lot of entertaining stuff, but it also I think has some pretty interesting stuff to say as well. Like it, it yeah. isn't just you know, empty calories. Like I do think there is, you know, some really interesting things going on. The documentary is better than the album. Way better. Oh my God. Yeah. All right. Uh, well that is that. And if anybody has anything to say, uh, Oh, um, actually before we do that part, uh, the next streaming homework I'm going to have us do is the other, some kind, uh, some kind of wonderful, which is a John Hughes, Delio from the 80s on Hulu. I've never seen it before. I, I believe you haven't either. Mm-hmm. Always meant to. So we'll, we'll catch up on that. And if anybody has anything to say about anything that we've talked about in this episode or previous, you can email us at mcguffinpod at gmail.com. You can reach out to us on our social media, um, on Twitter and Instagram at mcguffinpod. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at VC Cassidy. You can read the other uh, reviews and articles from the MacGuffin staff at MacGuff.in. Uh, it's also where the uh, podcast archives are. If, but if you're like a normal person and you listen to us on a streaming service of some type, um, whether it be iTunes, Stitcher Radio, Spotify, or... Google Podcasts. Everything, right? Mostly. All the things that matter. If you're listening to this, you found it. Yeah. So while you're here, uh, leave us a five-star rating and a one-sentence review to bump us up the algorithm. And you can read my reviews that I do weekly or semi-weekly over at the Idaho State Journal by looking up Idaho State Journal Arts and Entertainment. The For whatever reason, there is no just like movie review page anymore. So now my reviews are just like shuffled in between like whatever's going on in Southeast Idaho's dinner theater circuit or whatever. So look it up that way if you have to. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram uh, at Keith Foster Kid for more hot takes. Um, you can also follow my art account on Instagram at Sticky Note Aesthetic. Yes, and that is the episode. Hey, it's Lars from Metallica. I'm about to stick 50 grand up your ass. Bye.